Welcome to Neary's PolicyCast, episode 50, for November 2nd, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Since the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal earlier this year, November 4 has loomed large as the date on which significant U.S. sanctions on Iran and on third parties doing business with Iran return to force. As American allies seek to preserve the nuclear deal and protect their own firm's access to Iranian markets, do the new sanctions risk opening a rift with some of our closest partners? Commercial actors see that there's there's only so much or there's very limited things that their governments can do to protect them from the U.S. sanctions. And they're making the decision to, to protect their access to U.S. markets, whether it's financial markets or supply chains or, or otherwise. That was Catherine Bauer, a Washington Institute fellow and sanctions expert with deep experience at the Treasury Department. She joins us today to explain the November 4 sanctions and what they mean for U.S. strategy, for global markets, and for American businesses and citizens after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Catherine Bauer is the Blumenthal Katz Family Fellow at the Washington Institute and a former official at the U.S. Treasury Department. She has served as the Treasury Department's financial attache in Jerusalem and the Gulf and was a senior advisor for Iran in the Office of Terrorism Financing and Financial Crimes. Kate, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Since the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, in May, we've approached and we've passed several key dates for reimposing sanctions relating to Iran's nuclear program. What's the significance of the next date upcoming on November 4th? So November 4th is the end of the second and final wind down period. Uh, that is uh, the period that was given to, to firms that had uh, reengaged Iran when the sanctions relief went into effect. A period given to them to to wind down their business and a period after which uh, a number of activities will again become sanctionable. So there was a 90 day wind down period that ended on August 6th. And so we saw the resumption of sanctions on August 7th and on a on a number of activities around trade in gold and precious metals, uh, acquisition of U.S. dollars, the Iranian rial, Iran's automotive sector etc. And what we will see next week on November 5th is then the resumption of, of some of the, the more powerful sanctions on uh, Iran's energy sector, on, on a number of Iranian state-owned banks and um, dozens, if not hundreds, of other Iranian entities that were removed from sanctions lists as part of the JCPOA. In practical terms, will U.S. sanctions uh, after November 5th then be exactly as they were before the JCPOA in 2015? So there's still a lot of uh, a lot of questions outstanding related to exactly what sanctions will look like. The guidance that was put out by the Treasury Department uh, when the U.S. withdrew from the agreement um, did look very much like uh, a mirror image of the guidance they provided when the relief went into effect. Um, that being said, even from there, the administration doesn't have to do things the same way it did before. Um, and it doesn't have to give us all of the answers or, or tell everyone exactly how it's going to do, uh, do things right on November 5th um, either. Uh, these sanctions aren't necessarily self-executing. And so the administration can use its discretion 
um, to, to move forward or be more public with certain aspects of, of, of sanctions and waivers um, further down the road. And I wouldn't expect to see um, any major secondary sanctions right away, because in fact, this is when activity becomes sanctionable. And from there, then there would have to be a process of identifying who's engaging in that activity and deciding what step would be most appropriate to try to get it to stop, whether it's sanctions or something else. That being said, I think that one of the key differences we'll see, at least on actions taken um, on or around November 5th, would be in how some of the entities removed from lists are added back. Um, so the, the entities that were removed from lists were those that had been engaged in uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, because that was the scope of the deal. Iran committed to, to undertake certain uh, nuclear-related uh, steps, and in return, they got relief from nuclear-related sanctions. We've already seen, however, um, just in the last couple of weeks, the U.S. Treasury moved to relist one of Iran's major state-owned banks, Bank Melad, under non-nuclear sanctions authorities, under counterterrorism authorities, for working with Iranian an Iranian boniad that had ties to the besiege, which is a um, which is a paramilitary force that's subordinate to the IRGC. And of course, Iran's IRGC was listed under for its role in, in promoting terrorism um, uh, last year, just last year. So I think this is something we're likely to see. I think we're likely to see the administration and the Treasury Department in particular use other sort of authorities to highlight other sorts of Iranian bad behavior in line with the administration taking a broader approach to, to, to Iran's bad behavior, putting together its activities in the region, support for terrorism, human rights abuses, alongside concerns about nuclear proliferation in this period going forward. Why would Washington be using non-nuclear sanctions authority at this time? You know, if you look at the, the way sanctions were approached the last time around on Iran, is that the U.S. undertook a number of unilateral sanctions actions that drew attention to Iran's bad behavior. Because Although the, the primary embargo uh, had been in place, um, continues to be in place, you know, now for four decades, so U.S. firms were already prohibited from doing business, the use of these unilateral sanctions authorities allowed the, the government to draw attention to bad behavior. And a lot of this focused on entities uh, who had ties to Iran's nuclear program, um, since there was a consensus and growing consensus in the international community that this um, that, that this was a problem that the international community had to deal with. Um, I think it's it's possible that uh, part of the thinking now is that uh, is to draw attention to Iran's behavior in the region, Iran's support for terrorism, um, because there there could be more support in that area going forward. We've seen um, Iranian networks um, active in Europe. Uh, trying to, you know, plot uh, terrorist attacks. Um, and of course, there's, you know, concern about the destabilizing effect of support, Iranian support for terrorism and, and other proxies throughout the Middle East and the impact that has on Europe and, and, and other partners. Um, so, so drawing attention to that sort of activity could help, um, you know, build support for other aspects of, uh, of, of U.S. policy towards Iran. What should be U.S. priorities as our officials are developing and preparing to implement these new sanctions? So first of all, I think it's worth um, pointing out that uh, there's a considerable amount of resources that go into uh, just getting these sanctions back in place, whether it's uh, getting the uh, entities and individuals that were taken off list back onto list, writing the regulations that underlie the changes that will be implemented um, uh, on the 5th. 
but that these resources aren't limitless. And so questions of prioritizing uh, a, a work are, are, are really important. Um, I think we'll see uh, ongoing outreach by Treasury and State Department officials traveling the, the globe, talking with uh, public sector counterparts, as well as conducting outreach with the private sector. And, and when they're having those engagements, I would think that they, they'll probably be focusing on um, a couple of key things. One is it would be preventing sanctionable transactions. And that's what we'll see. The sanctions go back into effect. The activity becomes sanctionable. You identify who is still engaged in this activity and then go out and try to talk to people in that jurisdiction to, to try to change the behavior to get the activity to stop. And one of the ways to do that is definitely a public sanctions action, but it's not the only way to do it. As kind of a corollary to that, what they'll be trying to do is cut off Iran's access to its oil revenue. So that is the objective of the sanctions on the energy sector is to, to make sure that or to try to ensure that Iran has uh, limited or no access to hard currency, that it needs to uh, conduct trade, that it would need to support its own currency, the, the real, and engage in uh, support for uh, terrorist organizations and, and, other, and other bad activities. So the big difference this time around, of course, from the last time that these sanctions were implemented is that there's not strategic alignment between the U.S. and many of these interlocutors. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there can't be ways to, to find out uh, paths forward that are both uh, you know, most effective in terms of those outcomes, stopping sanctionable transactions, stopping uh, access to, to, to hard currency, uh, but also minimizing the impacts on our traditional allies and partners. That that seems like a very difficult balance to make, uh, maximizing the uh, strategic effect on our target in Iran while minimizing the effects on our allies who are in many cases now fairly deeply involved in doing business with Iran again after the JCPOA in, in 2015. Is, is that as difficult a challenge for our policymakers in the Treasury Department in, in practice, as it seems like it might be in theory? I think it's, 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 it's difficult in practice and difficult um, in the current circumstances. You know, again, the big difference between the sanctions this time, this time around as compared to last time is that there's not strategic alignment. The U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA and the, the remaining signatories are looking for ways to sustain the deal. And what we've seen is we've seen the Europeans in particular try to identify uh, a number of ways that they could protect their firms, that they could protect the trade between Europe and Iran that they see as underpinning this commercial relationship they see as underpinning their diplomatic relationship. Uh, so they've, they've rolled out a set of blocking statutes, which would, um, in theory, uh, penalize European companies that abided by U.S. sanctions. And more recently, they've announced their intention to set up what they're calling a special purpose vehicle, which would essentially allow for barter uh, between I Iran and Europe and potentially China and Russia as well as the other signatories, remaining signatories to the nuclear agreement. Uh, I would say I, I don't think that either of these um, proposals are going to, to, to be able to really deliver much benefit to Iran, because I think that the commercial actors see that there's, there's, there's only so much or there's very limited things that their governments can do to protect them from the U.S. sanctions. And they're making the decision to, to protect their access to U.S. markets, whether it's financial markets or supply chains, 
or or otherwise. Um, and so they, you've seen uh, European and Asian businesses react very very swiftly to the announcement of the U.S. withdrawal to to start to wind down their business. So it's in that context uh, that uh, U.S. officials will be engaging with their counterparts, where you may not have. You, you may not see commercial actors in a given country acting in line with what the official statements are coming out of the government. In that context, I think that there are ways to work through the issue, even though there may not be strategic alignment, um, to try to find uh, ways to get the maximum impact, uh, the maximum pressure that the administration is looking for from its sanctions um, while, while, not, while, while minimizing the impact um, on our partners and allies. We have seen recently, but we've we've also seen in in almost every prior instance of significant imposition of U.S. sanctions on on anybody, the worry among uh, some in the American policy community, and 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 also the I'm not sure whether threat or promise is the right word, uh, uh, but either way, uh, among actors outside the United States, the uh, the idea that the continued use and flexing of American leverage in financial terms based on the value of access to the American market, as well as the uh, um, the significant role that the dollar plays in international finance, the idea that that, that eventually, if we keep flexing this muscle, eventually someone is going to sort out an alternative that that, that cuts us out and gives the rest of the world uh, options that don't require access to SWIFT, access to American finance, uh, use of uh, dollar instruments, um, looking for ways to separate uh, from the, the need for access to the U.S. market. Is is there, do you see much danger in this instance that this reimposition of U.S. sanctions could lead to a, a strategic diminution of our leverage as far as financial sanctions go? So I think that, that countries, even before the U.S. withdrawal, of course, from the JCPOA, were looking at ways um, and trying to pursue alternatives uh, to the U.S centric financial system to the U.S. dollar dominated financial system uh, by looking at alternative currencies, looking at, at alternative payment platforms. You know, Russia has said they're going to issue their own uh, cryptocurrency. Venezuela has, has already tried to do that. China has been trying to um, is, is developing its own payment system. Uh, but at this point, I think that that any of those options, um, any of those uh, initiatives, are unlikely to to undermine the U.S. significantly and 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 undermine U.S. centrality um, in the financial system because there's of course a network effect to all of this, and there has to be greater benefit to people participating in that network than to participating in what's currently the dominant network. Um, and I, I just don't think we're there. And I think that uh, that doesn't mean this isn't a medium term and long term issue um, and and something that policymakers have to keep their eye on um, in terms of the overuse. I think it, it, it's it's worthwhile to look um, at this SPV, at this special purpose vehicle that's been proposed, because uh, one of the the kind of ironic things about it is the way it's been proposed is that it it resembles very closely the, the barter system that was um, that was not only allowed but actually prescribed by U.S. sanctions last time around, um, which required you know the countries that were continuing to import Iranian oil to take those revenues and to put them in an escrow account and only use that to finance bilateral trade, and that's pretty much what the Europeans um, are themselves uh, are proposing. 
when it's done without, uh, you know, not under a waiver from U.S. sanctions, you know, provided by the U.S., it's going to have little benefit to Iran because um, few countries are, are, are few companies, I think, are going to few firms will choose to participate in it and risk losing their access to U.S. markets. Um, but uh, this wasn't a, a controversial or problematic issue when there was alignment in terms of, of what the U.S. objectives were. There's buy-in, you know, from the members uh, of, of the EU um, and and other uh, P5 plus one countries. And uh, it's it's interesting to see that that's, it, that's exactly why the same arrangement, um, but outside of, of, of this, you know, a multilateral kind of consensus on on where this policy is going becomes problematic. Mm. Shifting focus a little bit away from the strategic and, and, and policy level, what effects will the heightened U.S. sanctions have on the global oil market? I think it's really hard to say uh, at this point exactly how it will affect oil markets. Uh, just generally, it's difficult to predict where oil markets are going, but specifically, there's still a great deal of um, both confusion on the one hand about uh, what and to whom Iran has sold in terms of oil during the wind down period, uh, as well as uh, what the plans are among Iran's traditional oil trading partners going forward, but also whether or not the U.S. will issue waivers from U.S. sanctions, uh, exemptions that would allow Iran's oil trading partners to continue to purchase oil, but perhaps at a reduced level. If they if they are given these significant reduction exemptions, those funds, uh, the 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 revenue that Iran would be gaining from these sales is required to be locked up and kept in those countries. And so, uh, you know, what that mechanism in the sanctions allows is the ability to to keep some of the oil on the market without Iran getting the benefit of making those sales. And we saw at first the administration uh, take a very hard line in terms of. Um, saying that it was trying to drive Iranian exports to zero, but they have more re- recently indicated that they might be willing to, to issue some waivers as long as there's continued reductions. Finally, should American consumers and uh, domestic businesses expect to experience any effects from the new sanctions on Iran? Very little. So the primary embargo that the U.S. has on Iran remained in place before and through the period of the JCPOA, and there'll be no no change um, in that. What the there there were a few exceptions as part of the JCPOA relief, which included allowing foreign subsidiaries of U.S. firms to do business with Iran, licenses for the sale of commercial a- aircraft to Iran, which which of course um, uh, would have been an activity that Boeing was looking at at getting involved in. Uh, both of those uh, activities and a couple other uh, discrete ones are are going away. Those are uh, those will now be prohibited. But what will continue is the humanitarian exemption, which allows uh, trade in medicine, medical devices, agricultural commodities, uh, et cetera. And this is actually an area where U.S. firms have been engaged both before uh, the Iran deal went into effect, you know, during the relief. And I would expect that to continue going forward. Um, that we see U.S. firms exporting uh, near record amounts of soybeans in recent months to Iran um, and continuing to provide uh, medicine and medical devices and other needed humanitarian related goods. 
thank you for uh, offering us this, uh, this this guided tour of uh, the, uh, the 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 present and near future of U.S. sanctions on Iran after the uh, U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA. We've been speaking today with Catherine Bauer. She is the Blumenthal Katz Family Fellow at the Washington Institute and a former official at the U.S. Treasury Department. She's also an adjunct pro- associate professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Policy. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.